All right, folks, we love y'all so much that somebody can't be here tomorrow, so we decided that we wanted to pre-record because we no longer want you to miss Tuesdays because we enjoy you watching us watching you. All right. So, uh, intros. Uh, H, how you doing? Uh, Miss Black Regalia? How's everything going? <laughs> Things are going good. This weekend was a good weekend for me and some other folks who have been... Um, not able to attend in-person ceremonies for the culmination of their advanced degrees. So the University of Pennsylvania, my home school for Quakers, uh, we graduated on yesterday. So it was really nice. The class of 20 and 21 who didn't get a chance to participate, got to participate in their ceremonies, get hooded. It was great. It was a good time. I'm very grateful. Unfortunately, my chair um, was not able to hood me. She got um, was unable to be there. But I had another professor step in, lovely Dr. Vivian Gaston, um, who is very important both in research in AARA and in Black scholarship. Her work around family engagement, specifically fathers, Black fathers and youth. Um, she was also one of my professors, and she was able to hood me. So it was really, really exciting. And Shakur is not used to us being on a Monday, so he is all about being here today. So, yeah, you can do that without a feeling like it. But we're doing good, doing good. That's I, I love hearing Black folks doing good. Uh, we were definitely in community with you yesterday. We were looking at the pictures and sharing them out. And uh, making sure you got the love you deserve. We are proud of you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Miss Ivy League, Miss HBCU. We'll get to that later. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Doc, man, you done hooded people, man. You done been on dissertation chairs, man. You you, you done made a, a a nice pathway for black men to obtain their uh, their doctorate degrees. You provide me counsel. So later in the year, when I defend, you know, I, I I'm gonna owe it to. Oh, some things to y'all as well. So what what's the trick, Doc? You know, uh I think a lot of it isn't about what you know, but it's about understanding the process, right? There's certainly an element of intellect involved. I don't want to uh de-intellectualize the dissertation process, but it's also about your resilience, your ability to be organized, um, your ability to surround yourself with people who are gonna be supportive and helpful um, at the right moments. Um, and I always tell graduate students, if I'm not on your committee, I ain't mad because my style ain't for everybody, you know, because I'm not the faculty member who wants to meet every week for three hours. Like I just don't, I don't believe in doing that as, as a chair of a committee because I think it's your, your dissertation. There are some people who do and I ain't knocking it. That's just not my philosophy. So I think part of it is about choosing the chair that makes the most sense for what you need, um, but also figuring out how to take care of yourself. Um, and also realizing that you're in a village, right? I think far too often, which goes to our conversation about PWIs, I think people believe that they're in it alone because doing a dissertation is largely a solitary venture. But I think you still have a village of people to talk to, to, to cry with, to be mad with. Um, and so I think for me, my, my commitment um, is to the culture um, and making sure that I'm just available for any doc student, whether they're at American University, UPenn, wherever. Like it doesn't matter to me 
it's just what I owe because people did that uh, for me. And so I, I think that I owe that to them, whether it's sending them an article that's real obscure and old and dated that I used in my dissertation. Uh, I sent someone a copy of my dissertation. Um, I sent uh, one of my former doc students who just finished at AU, um, had her permission to send her dissertation to the co cohort that's right behind her, or two cohorts behind her so that they could see it. So um, I think for me, you know, um, it's about paying it forward um, and just helping folks realize you're not alone. Um, and you just gotta know the process, right? And be deliberate, be organized. Um, and I don't mean organized in one way, like there are multiple ways to be organized. I did my dissertation with all paper with articles cause it was that long ago. Um, I don't even know if you could, I don't even know if you could download stuff in 2006 or whenever it was, uh, you probably could, but I just didn't know how to do that. But anyway, and I just have boxes and each box contained a series of articles based on either methodology, history of black teachers, uh, the mental aspect of being black teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was my organization system. I ain't had no outline on paper. I ain't had no spreadsheet because I barely know how to use Excel. Um, and I don't write. <laughs> so like, yeah, the Excel spreadsheet would do me no good, but I definitely didn't have an outline necessarily because that's just not how I write anyway, um, which makes it difficult for me to write with other people. So I, I've adapted to being able to do that. So um, I'm extremely proud of Dr. Harrison um, and extremely proud of you, Ray, because I, I think that people who've never done it don't understand if you're not going to a paper mill, like, and I'll say it publicly, if you're not going to a paper mill, uh, writing a dissertation is one of the most challenging things Bruh. that you <laughs> that you ever do when yeah. you are a graduate student because you have to deal with other people's feedback. Yep. You have to deal with the owns imposter syndrome that most of us have. Yes. You, you second guess yourself about random things that, you know, like under normal circumstances, you wouldn't. Um, and I think it's one of the hardest things uh, to do. And I always give folks respect to do it and do it in a way that is uh, not through a paper mill. Right. And I, I'll be very clear about that. Like, I just, I, I don't rock with the people who do it as a paper mill because you, what do you learn by doing that? What? I, I, and again, I just think it's a learning journey. So um, yeah, lo a lot of respect for those who finish. I agree, and and I would add two things to that if we could stick there for just a second. I think it. One of my professors told me that it isn't doing the dissertation that's difficult. It's what the dissertation does to you, and there mm -hmm. is time when you are asking these questions, looking at the literature, thinking about your proximity, thinking about how these things experience, how you experience it, that can like mess you up, right? There's yeah, times when you are listening to people who you are interviewing and you are thinking about times when you may have been the person who may have done something like this to somebody else who ignored the sign or ignored the cue or made a bad hire. And so the work that of what happens to you when you put yourself in that role can can also be something that I don't think we talk about enough. Um, I also want to shout out those people who genuinely approach the dissertation process and their research with the intent to answer a question that matters to them. 
and not necessarily writing a dissertation to make it so it's a book to get published. Now, no shade to folks who publish things because that's nice. But for those of us who approach a question to try to answer it in order to impact the field, that's why you have a chapter for implications. How does this impact the field? How does this impact the people? How does this enrich the work altogether? Not like how you can use this to enrich your pockets is something I think we got to like call out when we see it. And not necessarily in a bad way, but just name. I didn't go about my study to try to get rich. I went about my study to answer a question about the experiences for Black girls in order to hopefully have findings that could improve their experiences, right? And so I think, too, there's something very special and unique about those of us who sit in seats as research practitioners, because there's a lot of great people who do amazing research, who have never been out in the field, and a bunch of amazing master teachers in the field who have never had the opportunity or the interest to do research. And so those of us who sit in the middle of that, I know how this looks, and I want to ask a question in order to generate some information that can impact experiences is a real sweet and wonderful place to be, but there's a huge responsibility that also comes with that. Wow. So, I mean, if I, if I had to add anything, I would just talk about just like, you know, protecting your mentals. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's extremely important in terms of thinking about this process. Right. Because uh, doc, you mentioned it before about just thinking about imposter syndrome and like all those things that you go through in terms of dealing with uh, committees and dealing with folks that may not be uh, front and center, used to your writing, used to how you present things or whatever, right? And, um, you know, if I was giving any advice to, to folks, like, just be confident in yourself, stand by your convictions, right? right, in terms of uh, how you approach the work. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, especially, you know, f- for those of us that are historically marginalized, you know why you're doing this work, right? You're doing this work to uplift your people. And so, you know, sticking on that um, and hydrating, exercising and, and making sure that you are taking care of your, your, your body physically, because we don't talk about this enough. But I'm willing to venture that uh, those folks that are going through a dissertation process, um, the health challenges that people experience oh, in terms of like not paying attention to your body, not listening to your body, just trying to push through and push through this dissertation because the the only good dissertation is finished dissertation could leave you in the grave. So make sure that you are uh, paying attention to your body. But Ray, it's also a byproduct of of the system, right? Mm. Byproduct of the structure of higher education where it situates academic product over your mental health. Right. Whether you're chasing tenure and promotion and I'm guilty of it. Right. Because I chase tenure and promotion. Right. And I remember the pain and the stress and the frustration of it all. Um, And I think that same same culture. Plays out in far too many institutions. Right. Where doctoral students get pressure about, well. If you finished at this university, that means you need to get a job here. But if I finish and get a degree at wherever, how come I just can't go be a kindergarten teacher? Because my question was designed to make me a better kindergarten teacher. Like, why do I have to leave a tier one university, let's say, and go be a researcher at a tier one university? Well, that's because these universities are chasing the rankings 
not not chasing uh, the love of scholarship, the love of engagement, mm-hmm. uh, and the love of what it means to just be a practitioner and doing the work, right? And I think that contributes to it. But you know, to critique the system of higher education, in particular doctoral studies, is a pretty risky thing to do. Um, but it also is why I enjoy, you know, my colleagues in the doctoral program at American University. Right. Like I feel yeah. like it's a humane process. Um, and, and I, I know plenty of places that people don't experience a humane process. And when we diminish somebody's humanity, then what are we doing this for then? Right, right. What do what we, we have? Yeah. 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 So so you know, you know, there are a lot of folks that follow us that are not on PhD tracks that don't have uh you know doctoral degrees or whatever that you know so uh, how how does that degree that you obtain or the degree that you receive now uh transfer over to helping them and helping our people, hmm. right? And so, you know, we go into this next segment. Uh you better call me doctor. And let me um let me set it up. Let me let me let me, let me set this up right. Right. So you know, you'll have a lot of a lot of folks that 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 will defend and uh, and will become uh, either a PhD or EDD, um, and you can't really say nothing to them, right? Um, they know everything about everything or whatever, and just having a rational conversation, uh, this is no longer a possibility. And so I want to say really quickly, once I defend. I will be an expert in the area in which I defend it, right? Will not be an expert in everything under the sun because I don't know about everything under the sun. I don't know a minor amount that will allow me to be able to defend a specific topic, right? Not every topic. And so how how do we not fall into those tropes of feeling like we know everything? Yeah. So I, I don't know, but I, you know me, I'm always like, well, what about the other side, right? So, so often we have to fight and make room at the table and build out space to even be acknowledged. <laughs> um, whether you have a, a degree or credentials or experience or a master teacher. And so there is this other part that's like, sure, I might not be a master in all things, but you're going to recognize the hard work that I've done. And you're going to call me by, by this name. You know, you can call me all these other names. Out of, name, out of my name often. So give me the respect that the hard work and that the vetting and that the that that I deserve for this, right? So I think it's two ways. I think there are probably a bunch of, anybody who's like, call me doctor because I know everything, probably thought they knew everything before they even got IRB, right? That's a whole different thing. <laughs> they came into the process thinking that they knew anything. I was talking to a friend of mine and I had asked them, so if you had to, be defined by three, like three to five words. Like, how would you define yourself, right? So I was asking her about me. So she says, well, I think that you would definitely be a scholar. And I said, really? Have you like read my research? Is that because I got a degree? She says, no, it's mostly because as a scholar, a scholar is someone who learns, teaches, and continues to learn. They're like committed to ongoing learning. Like that's what makes you a scholar. You're not always a student, but you're engaging in learning in ways that is more deeper. So then those of, there are some folks who just went to get the letters to say, I have them and this is what I want you to call me. These are the first people who got their their IDs changed to doctor on their credit cards because they want somebody <laughs> to give them a thing and they think it's a better line because I'm doctor such and such. But then there's those of us who like, 
refer to ourselves as who we are because we recognize that this, these credentials and this very hard work is just one slice of who we are all together about our total body. I'm a, I'm a friend, I'm an auntie, I'm a daughter, I'm a scholar, I'm a teacher, I'm a leader, I'm all of these things. And so none of us should feel like we have to be defined by one particular title. It's just like people who get married, right? Now I'm a wife, you're gonna call me this. Like, okay, like, and your other things too. And so I think there's this room we can find in between to both acknowledge the hard work and give credit where credit is due. And then to call out folks who are often perpetrating behind some letters or some certificate or some job or some title that make them think that they know more than anyone else. Cause that's not, that's not authentic. Agreed. Um, uh, sir, jumping in here. <laughs> muted. You're muted. 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 Sorry. Y'all already know I choose violence on this one, man. Like, I, <laughs> I, you know how many times I've been in meetings and somebody's called me Mr. Simmons and I just kept it pushing and somebody somebody uh, says to me, after, oh, Simmons, you know, you should correct them because they called you Mr. And I'm like, man, that check come every two weeks, bro. The impact of the word don't change. I ain't take it as a disrespectful thing because I signed my name, Robert Simmons. Y'all have heard me mention Dave Stovall, who's like one of my academic icons, mentors, someone I, I just love his work, right? And the way he talks about his work in higher education. Stovall once said, man, man, people, people got them three funky letters after that name, after their name. That just means they paid a lot of money to write a really long paper. It don't mean that you experience the world that differently as a black person. You know, the police still roll up on you. Hmm. I'm still worried about how my son feels. Like all, all, the, all the same things happen. Now, does it mean that there are different opportunities that I have because of that? Sure. Right. But it also means that with those opportunities come great responsibility. And once you finish, it's also about what do you do with it when you're done? That's right. Right? Do you continue to engage in an intellectual community? Um, do you continue to engage in a scholarly uh, activist and a scholar practitioner community? Or do you just take it and let it sit on the shelf and that's it? And they run around, tell people they got to call you doctor. I just, I find great offense to it because there's so many. My granny got a PhD from, uh, um, from New Market, Tennessee with a third grade, fourth grade education. She was one of the smartest people I ever knew. My mother, you know, she ain't got no doctoral degree, but she's just as smart as everybody else in library science because she OG in the game, right? So I just think that we, I just don't get caught up in that. And I'm quite content, you know, and when people are like, oh, should we call you Dr. Simmons? I'm like, man, my birth certificate said Robert Simmons. So like, yeah, I, I don't find myself sweating people about calling me doctor, but I will, what I say more often is, my research is in so that they can realize that it's that, that I'm I an like expert that. in that. So I yeah, like that. I went to Penn and my research centered on adolescent black girls and their perceptions of safety and sense of belonging. Because I like I, it's not about the title or the thing I have, but it is about what I learned in my study. And it also opens the door for me to have a conversation with folks about what I found out 
in my study, which was the purpose, right? Like I didn't engage these girls and do these surveys and interviews and ask them to collect pictures just to hoard it for myself. I did it with the intent to learn about their experiences, to elevate it so that it can make a difference in somebody's life. Um, and so I often will, I probably talk more about what my research was than what letters I have behind my name. That's right. And I also think that it's an earned doctorate to me, right? Like I've heard me talk about this whole thing with people getting these honorary doctorates and all of a sudden, you know, this doctor so-and-so. And I'm like, dude, like, come on, man. Like, that's that's absurd. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, I don't want to open up the can of worms for, for y'all two in particular, but I, I would wonder how this aligns with honorary members of fraternities and sororities. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was waiting for that one. You already knew. Ooh. Because I've always wondered, like, well, the same energy, the same energy you got is the same energy that folks that are in these orgs have, right? Like, right. if I if I don't if I if I did the amount of work that I had to do in order to become a member of my organization, and 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 anybody that's a member of the Divine Nine will let you know that you know the the, the front end of the work is not the easy part. Being a member and doing the work after. You that's become right. a member. Right. Are that's, you that's, the, that's where the work comes in, right? Yo, that's where the work comes in, right? Um, and so, yeah. And so, um, you know, it, if, if folks are doing the work after they uh, accept honorary membership, that's one thing. But if folks just Fair do enough. it for, for, the, for, the, for the sake of doing it, you know. Fair yeah. I, I th- and I think that the doing the work piece uh, to close the loop on that is important in all of those cases, right? Um, because I think it's super important to acknowledge the legacy of those who came before you, be there in doctoral studies or in the amazing legacy of the divine nine in our community. Right. And I think that if you, if you don't do the work after, you know, like I, I, I just, I just am like, eh, you know, and I, I'm not in, um, uh, any of the divine nine, but y'all know I've supported the divine nine with grants to support their work. Um, Shout out to um, the South Atlantic region uh, of Alpha Kappa Alpha doing a panel discussion with them to increase the number of black women and girls interested in uh, tech careers with a whole panel of super dope sisters talking about STEM on June 5th. And, you know, I'm honored to be in the space, but I'm also respectful of the legacy of those organizations. And I just think those doing the work after they, you know, go through the process and become members. I just think it's super important to acknowledge. So shout out to the Divine Nine for uh, the work that they uh, do in our community. So some people pledge a little longer than others. Wow. Some do their dissertation. I mean, it's, it's very similar. It reminded me even about like hazing, right? <laughs> Sometimes the, I was thinking about the chair committee relationship. Yeah. How you talked about protecting your mentals and how sometimes people can go into that and it can feel a lot like hazing. It can feel like bullying. It can feel like ways oh, that yeah. isn't safe for your mentals, as you put it. So that's, that's a good way that we kind of parallel. We didn't even intend to like make that connection, but there, there's a lot of connections there. Yeah. So, and, and even thinking further about those connections, right? Let's really play this out because, you know, if you think about Dina Pledges and you think about dissertation process, you know, you're a member of Divine Nine, there's more than likely chance that your Dean of Pledges is going to be a Black person. Mm. Yeah. However, 
if you're going through a dissertation process, you may very likely not have a black chair. <laughs> the chances of you having a black chair is very slim. Right. Sure. And so now going through that hazing process with someone that's white facing, right? That is the dominant, uh, you know, the dominant culture in, in, in higher ed, let's say, right? Um, how you take and receive that feedback is a little different than how you would take that feedback if it was coming from a place of care and love. Sure. Yeah, it, it's it's taking the feedback, and it also is like how you are positioning yourself to understand how I'm approaching this problem and and trying to solve this research thing too, which gets back to the point about this is why we need more people in, of service and giving back, right? Yeah. That's why we we don't have a lot of black chairs because we don't have a lot of black people willing to be on committees, and we'll have more of them if we decide to step up, step up and say you'll be on a committee, offer somebody some some advice. Sit in on somebody's defense, right? We that's another way that we send the elevator back down. I think about when I was starting my research, I had reached out to uh, Dr. Terry Watson, who I've never met in person. Mm. I followed her on Twitter. I loved what she said. I built up the courage and sent her a direct message. She said, Girl, give me a call. This woman, scholar, professor, super busy, who I've never even met, sent me her number and talked to me on the phone for an hour and a half to help me think about how I might frame my questions and engage with the girls in my study. She didn't have to do that. She wasn't right. in my community. She wasn't attached to Penn. But she saw a way to send the elevator back down to connect me, to embrace Come on. whether she was in my committee or not. And so while we might not have black chairs and black full-time faculty, there are enough black scholars and who are in research, who are doing lit reviews, who have read an article, read a book, had an interest, had a conversation, and we can be listening and supporting up the village and the community in that way. So that when it's our turn to sit on the side to be a chair or to serve on a committee or to give somebody some help and support, we can remember the time that someone did that for us and yep. we'll pay it forward for them. Come Yo, on with shout it. Out, shout out, shout out, Dr. Watson. Uh, uh, look, 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 look. This, yeah. this Ray and H. Let me tell y'all. This is a true truism of many, 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 many black academics, right? And I think that part of the story isn't told, right? Mm -hmm. I will never forget being an undergraduate student, and I knew I wanted to be a teacher, and I was writing a paper about uh, black uh, about ebonics at that time. And one of my professors was like, hey, who are you finding in your research? And I was like, oh, Geneva Smitherman, da 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 Geneva Smitherman was right up the street. I went to Western Michigan University. Being from Michigan, you can always do like this. It's over here. Uh, shout out to all those Broncos listening. And uh, I sent her a note. And, uh, you know, that was the early days of uh, email. So I, I, I know I emailed her. She sent me as an undergraduate student a copy of her book, and I still have it. Two of them signed by her, Dr. G. Geneva Smitherman is a, is a legend, a legend in linguistics. A legend, right? And I was like, and I didn't know what I had at that point other than a good book to read. I'm like, all this cool. But to this day, whether it's Pedro Naguera, Chance Lewis, um, Ebony Zamani, Gallagher, like I could run off a list of people that if I send them an email to talk to Dr. Heather Harrison says she got it, she trying to act like she don't do that. Um, where Ray Ankrum, like this isn't just about like 
doctoral students. It's about black folks showing up for each other. And if somebody says, yo, I got so-and-so that's struggling, you think you could talk to them about A, B, C, and D. I just think there are a number of people in our networks and ecosystem who do that. And I just find it to be super exciting um, to, to this day, right? And I tell H all the time, like there are students at American University who have heard her on this podcast, Googled her dissertation, follow her work, know her from being, I think the only, only principal to ever receive the Family and Community Engagement Award twice, right, H? She ain't gonna say this, Ray, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, twice, right? Twice. Like people know who she is and she's a legend and she don't walk in it with like, man, look, I'm here, call me Dr. Harrison. She gets on that elevator on the way back down and puts somebody else on it with her and brings them back up. And so I just think that it's a universal truth that a lot of us do that. So maybe it's not quite a universal truth, but it is a significant number of black folks. And I always encourage our student, my doctoral students reach out. I had some students reach out to Ruha Benjamin one time uh, for her work around racism and artificial intelligence. And they were like, Simmons, she responded. And we right. just had a question about her book. And I'm like, yeah, that's not unusual. I think the thing though is, so like in the places that it's not unusual, like shout out to all those other folks. And it is an opportunity to question yourself. If you're receiving an email and mm. leaving it on unread because you think, I don't know that person, I'm too good. I would encourage you to think about a time when you needed somebody's help, uh, uh, some, some advice, some guidance. And then if not, maybe it just serves as an opportunity for folks to just be more active and be connected. I would have never thought that I could send an email to someone who would respond immediately to me. And all of that kind of stuff plays into that imposter syndrome. It plays into this, I don't belong, I'm not smart enough, they're so much better than me. When we really, if we're genuine, are all trying to solve some really important, deep questions about what is happening specifically how it is impacting our communities and who better to engage with as we try to solve these problems but one another. And so shout out to all those folks who are responding to, um, and, and receiving those. And then if you're somebody who's not, it might be a chance to take a little bit of Michael Jackson moment and look in the mirror and say, are you sending the elevator back down? Are you being thoughtful with your time for people? Are you putting your hand out and to embrace or putting your hand out to block? Yeah. Man, thank you guys for sharing that. That's that that is amazing. And um hopefully, you know, folks that are listening um will be able to learn from these experiences. And then also, you know, sending that elevator back down is an important part of life. Um, you know, because I mean karma, right? You know what they say. You know, what goes around comes around. So no better way to get blessed than to try to bless other people. So next topic, um, HBCUs versus PWIs. And so I'm going to set the stage for this, right? Um, so I attended the University of Stony Brook, which is a tier one university located on Long Island in New York. I also attended the Morgan State University located in Baltimore, Maryland. The? Also attended, yeah, with the, with the, Okay. Wow. While, while, we're while, while, we, while we're on this podcast right here, we the Morgan State University. They might not even call it the. I might be the only person, person in America that calls it the. <laughs> but hey, it's the today. 
And then um, I also uh, attended uh, Columbia University as well. So, you know, it's like the tripod of experiences in terms of uh, the tier one HBCU and IV experience. So I feel like I have a unique perspective in terms of how we may approach this, this conversation. And so for me, man, and so well, Rob, let's lay it out for you as well. You, you, um, all, all PWI, right? All day, every day. <laughs> and, 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 and all the universities that you've worked have been PWIs as well, right? Uh, except DC public school. Yeah, actually. Yeah, that is, uh, That's an HBCU DC public uh-huh. school. No, uh, <laughs> depends on where at. Depends on where you are. Uh, let's, let's, Not everybody yeah. is. I don't want to open that can of words. Uh, I don't want to open uh, that can of words. Uh, H and I have a long conversation about that. Yeah, I mean, it's BCPSS. BCPSS is definitely an HBCU. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, I, growing up in Detroit, I just didn't, it never crossed my mind. And both my parents with the Morehouse and Spelman, right? So, you know, it, it just never crossed my mind to go to an HBCU because they were just so far from Detroit. And it just wasn't a world that I knew. And I just, you know, like I just never pursued it. Um, the closest HBCU or HBCUs to Detroit was Central State and Wilberforce. And at that point, they were struggling with accreditation. And my mother was like, that's not a good idea if you want to be a teacher because your, you, your teaching certificate may not be valid. So I got good advice from her. And, um, you know, and I, I didn't um, I didn't know what I was missing because I'd never experienced it. Like I just never went to a homecoming as a kid um, in Detroit. Um, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where most of the people didn't go to college. So it's not like I was talking to them about it. Um, and it, it just never crossed my mind uh, as something that I wanted to, to do. You know, I knew what HBCUs were and understood their importance because of my parents. But like it just was something that seemed so far off in the distance. Well, how am I gonna get home? Because my mother and my grandmother were like, "Look, you know, you you can go to uh, you know, eight, nine, ten, twelve hours away if you want to, but you're gonna be riding a bus. Ain't gonna be no airplane." And I, you know, I was like, "The bus, like the Greyhound." <laughs> <laughs> nah, I I ride I ride the Greyhound to Western Michigan University. Two and a half, three hours, but can't rock the Greyhound for eight, nine, ten, eleven hours on the bus with people I don't know, like the bathroom, like nah, I'm, I'm good. So I just, you know, it, it just wasn't anything that I wanted to do. But when I was at the university, you know, I was deeply involved in, uh, you know, we went to the Million Man March. Was deeply involved with the Black Student Union, so stayed in touch with who I was as a as a as a as a black kid from Detroit, and. Um, fully knew that I didn't fit into the broader culture of the university. Um, and, and I was okay with that actually, because I think it allowed me to have different, a different experience, uh, for graduate school. Um, you know, it just never, again, I was back in Detroit when I decided to go to graduate school. So like I, I had to do what was convenient when I was a teacher. Plus I was going to go into science education and Lawrence, uh, technological university, which is known for producing engineers, had a science education program, and there were very few in the country. 
and they were paying part of my tuition. So I was like, all right, that's damn near free. Like, well, you know, I, I just, I didn't feel like being at an HBCU for me at, at that point in my life would have uh, made me a better or worse black person because I left home as a whole black person. Mm. Right. So I think for me, my roots were deeply grounded in the struggle because my parents, my uncle was a part of the nation of Islam, then part of the shrine of the black Madonna. So I was reading Albert Clegg and uh, black Messiah. I was reading James Cone and black liberation theology, Naeem Akbar. Like I was reading Diop before I went to college. So for me, mm. I knew what I needed, but I also knew what these PWIs weren't going to uh, give me uh, as a black student. So I was under no del uh, illusion, but I do think that knowing what I know now, um, I would have taken a different path and tried to figure out something different because I do think that being at an HBCU is just a different experience. You know, I did play football in college. I wasn't the star of the team. So like I could have went to an HBCU and you know, <laughs> <laughs> been, you know, been on the squad there too and just been like, you know, I ain't going to the NFL and like, but at least I had a good time and would enjoy the trips and, and hanging out and things like that. So knowing what I know now, I think that, um, you know, uh, I would have gone to an HBCU um, for undergrad, graduate school. You know, I, I would have to think about that depending on where I was at. But mm -hmm. What's up, H? Yeah, so I went to Hampton University. Um, D. It's not D. It's not D. My, my home by the sea, the real HU, you know. Um, so I went there for undergrad. I then I went to Trinity College. At the time, it was ninety nine, and they did not become a university until after that. So I went to Trinity College after I graduated, which is a small um, private school uh, here in DC. So their undergraduate is all girls, but their graduate programs are co-ed. So I was in the graduate program, and so we were in a cohort model with mostly adults. And then I went to finished at Penn. So I kind of did it the other way, where I was HBCU first, then a small, and then a, a Ivy. What I think is interesting is kind of both the timing of it. So I knew I wanted to go to an HBCU, but it wasn't. I mean, I grew up in PG County. I went to PG County Public Schools. So it wasn't like I went there expecting to get some kind of like black experience that I hadn't before um, because I lived in a black neighborhood and had black friends. I think my first experience at an HBCU was when I was a little girl and one of my mom's friend's sons graduated from Virginia State and they made us go down for the graduation. I remember being like, look at all of these people. Like what, what are all of these people doing in these guys? Like it was just, it was incredible to see. I think for me, what's important is, you know, you got to know who you are and you got to be honest about things that could be barriers because college and the transition in from high schools to college and career or into adulthood can be very, um, it can be a lot for folks, whether it be financial, mental health, leaving home at that independence. And so you got to be able to kind of know what you can and what your child can and can't do. I remember thinking about college, but not really thinking about career. So like, I think if you looked at my book, like somebody may have said, oh, I think I might study accounting. Well, I don't even really like math, right? So how, well, why well, would well. I, yeah, I don't, I, I was like, oh, I'll be a judge. And then I'll like do, but that's law school. But for now I'll like do accounting. I don't think 
we did enough of understanding the the depth of careers and teaching young people that if you're good at one thing, that doesn't have to be this kind of career. You can be four or five or six or seven different things. And and I was in school in the mid nineties and there still was like, oh, so you'll be a teacher or a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer. People weren't really saying a lot about like, oh, you can be a chemical engineer. You can be an architect. There were one or two people, but I don't think that the the preparation in schools, no matter which one it is, to kind of get you to think about what could these skills translate into and which schools have the best programs for that and how to make that something that is affordable and manageable and reasonable is, is something that we talked about enough. I, I think that's what we don't do. And so if you're going to approach it, then the least you can do is be in a place where folks look like you, where they care about you. Like I felt, I felt seen at Hampton. I felt like people knew who I was. If I was missing, they would look out for me that, that there was just a, you know, there was hip hop in the hallways, it smelled like cocoa butter. And, you know, it just, it was just a, a whole full black experience. It was also at the time where a different world was, was very important to how I began to understand it. And there were parts of a different world that were based on both Hampton and Howard, with Hampton and Spelman. And so there's some pictures and some shots in the beginning. What, is this no cap? Is that what you're doing? No, no cap? Um, you capping. Oh, you capping right now. You capping. Cocoa butter. Come on it's, now. It smell like frankincense and shea butter and cocoa butter. It smell, <laughs> yeah, you capping. It smell like the 90s. It smell like bumble. It smell like the 90s. But I think the point is that who you are is, is especially in that transition into adulthood is very much built on how you see yourself and the experiences that are real for you and who you surround yourself with. And whether that is at a, a, a PWI or HBCU or a small community college, there is a, a tribe and a unit and a connection that is needed in those years. And if folks don't aren't in institutions where that is an ingrained part of the culture, then it would be in their best interest to think about ways to, to connect and to create those connections because otherwise it could be harmful, both physically, mentally, emotionally, financially. Like think about people who just decided to go out to a school, got a bunch of debt, couldn't finish, now come home. You know what I mean? Like it can, it can, there's some decisions that you make in that window that can have some lifelong impact. And so doing it and taking those risks in spaces where you still love, seen, supported, and valued, um, I think matters. Cool. Oh, that's real. Yeah, it is. that's real. Thanks for sharing that, H. Appreciate that. Um, so I think I could connect with, uh, with, with with some of the experiences that you guys have had. I remember being at the University of Stony Brook, and I remember like feeling like Stony Brook was a bubble, right? And so I really didn't feel um, a lot of racist things were happening at Stony Brook uh, mm-hmm. during the time in which I was there, right? Uh, well, because a lot of times you're insulated, uh, you know, by the university, and you really don't you only see what the picture that's being painted in the area that you're in, right? And so years later, it kind of impacted my decision to come back on Long Island 
my experience at Stony Brook. So like as I'm experiencing this, I'm like, man, I could go back to I can go to Riverhead. Like, you know, it's not that far from from Stony Brook or whatever. And like, you know, unbeknownst to me, Riverhead is one of the most racist places in the United States. Right. Suffolk County uh, outside of Stony Brook is one of the most racist places on earth. Um, I'm from the South. I'm from the deep South. And being on Long Island sometimes reminds me of being in Mississippi, the level of of racism that you feel. And it's not it's not um, it's not the same in the sense that, you know, if you're down south, racism is a little bit more overt than what it is up here. Like racism is subtle here. Right. It's like you have to worry about the things that you don't hear and how you experience racism up north. Um, it also can play into, you know, your job, uh, you know, how folks view your job, uh, how, how folks view the effectiveness, effectiveness of how you do your job. And so it's a lot of different ways that that racism can play out in, in the north. And so but I remember, uh, you know, my experience at, uh, at Morgan, I went down to Baltimore City Public Schools, got a job um, and my teachers in my teacher ed program, and I know we're going to talk about this later, uh, they would come to the school. I was at Lake Clifton Eastern High School back when it was Lake 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 Clifton, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Before they cha- before they turned it into smaller learning communities, before they destroyed the damn school. But anyways, I, I was there when Lake was Lake. Um, and, uh, and my teachers used to come in they used to coach me, uh, on how to be a better educator, right? Like getting that hands-on experience, you know, then going to, to, to Morgan later in the night and, uh, being able to cut my teeth in terms of, uh, building with my colleagues on how to be better, uh, better educators. And there are many people that were in that cohort that are now doctors that are now, uh, school leaders or whatever. So, you know, when I look at the, and think about the power that came out of, that cohort, right? Because it was the last one, similar to TFA, um, but uh, it was called Project Site Support. There's no, there's not even a website for it anymore. Like the website has been archived, and you know. But like Morgan knew that it was the last year of their funding for it, and so they went big. It was like sixty of us in that cohort, right? And so you know, I say all that to say that the way that I experienced teaching may have been a little bit different but i came in prepared right i feel like after my experience at my hbcu i was i left prepared to teach in any inner city in the country right and um you know it speaks a lot because you know we got a lot of people that come out of these teacher ed programs that they're definitely not ready to teach our kids in the inner city and so um i'm guessing that's a perfect segue into the role of teacher education in higher ed. And so, Doc, we'll start with you, sir, because I know you got many different opinions about <laughs> about this topic. So, sir, where are you? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I started <laughs> out in teacher education, man, as a faculty member, and I didn't quite understand it, right? I was like, what? Like, what? What do you mean we're training teachers to teach, but the classes ain't in the school. Mm. Like what, where they do that at? Like what, I don't understand, right? And, you know, as an undergraduate student, I don't know that I felt that prepared to teach in my neighborhood in Detroit. 
what I felt prepared me was my knowledge of my neighborhood. Right now, certainly there was some things that prepared me. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I got a trash education. I just think the, the ability to relate to, to my students, the ability to understand their needs. In large part, I was in the neighborhood that I grew up in. So there were th- there were norms and mores in the community that I understood. Many of their siblings or cousins or whatever, we went to church together. Like all of the, y'all know the ecosystem that's in Baltimore, DC, Detroit, Cleveland, et cetera, right? You, when you've been in it, you just have a different uh, cultural IQ in the community, right? Which helps you as a beginning teacher while you're trying to master classroom management, things like that. So I'll say that. Now, as a faculty member, I never understood the three things, which is why I've grown distrustful of teacher education with all due respect to teacher prep programs, right? One, how are you training someone to be a teacher when you've never done it? Like, if I want to be a great heart surgeon, I want someone who's done thousands of heart surgeons, surgery, surgeries to teach me, right? Like, I want to know what you've learned from your mistakes, your failures, and your triumphs. And for me, I just found that to be really frustrating as an academic. Like, well, wait a minute, like, you ain't never taught before? So you just went from undergrad, graduate school, and now you a professor because you got three funky letters after your name some, from some elite institution. I don't, hmm. I'm not following. So that's one piece. The second piece is that I think the tenure process limits the ability of faculty to be creative within teacher education. What I mean is I used to always say to folks, well, if I want to improve my practice as a teacher educator, how come I can't go and co-teach a class in, I don't know, the west side of Detroit? And it count towards my load and allow me to do that once a year, every other year, like something like how, how do I improve my craft? How do I know beyond what I'm reading in the literature? So I think there's a flawed design and what we value in many tenure and promotion processes at universities. The last thing is, I mean, I question how well some of these folks who are in teacher education actually teach themselves. Like, I mean, I, I I have watched somebody teach before and I'm sitting in the class bored as shit. Like <laughs> you teaching teachers and this class is boring. Have you ever watched the best K-12 teacher? And that was one of the biggest debates I had at Loyola University, Maryland, is I used to always say that. Like you want to do real training of Kate of a higher ed faculty, let me drop you in Kiera Butts classroom or Rodney Robinson or Heather Harrison. Let me have you watch them teach, right? Kelly Harper, who was a teacher of the year in DC at one point, uh, now she's in Atlanta. Let me drop you in a classroom of some of the K-12 teachers. They don't have a bunch of supplies and materials that you may think you have in, in higher education. They may not have the best science labs at X high school in DC, Baltimore, Detroit, et cetera. But yet those kids come out as critical scholars and intellectuals about the legacy of black folks in STEM. How do they mm. do that with 10 beakers between right. 52? <laughs> mm. Yeah. You telling me you need one beaker per student 
in order to teach. Cut it out, man. So I just, um, and I'll say, last thing I'll say is, as part of the reason why um, I, I'm not housing teacher education anymore. And I'm in education, leadership, and policy. Because, you know, like I've given up on teacher education programs, both alt-route programs and traditional teacher prep programs. I just think the way we train teachers in America just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think a lot of this should happen in schools. Like, how come I can't have a school of education inside a Principal Harrison school or Su Superintendent Ancrum school? Like, what does it actually look like to do that, right? And I get it, there's a state credentialing and all that, but we can figure that out. But from a practical standpoint, how come we can't uh, do that? Like, I don't, I, I've never understood uh, why that just seems like an impossibility. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so that, jump your head. that makes me feel like I need to maybe be, maybe part of the problem is that I'm not teaching the next generation of teachers, right? Like, maybe that's something that I need to, to think about because I loved teaching and coaching up the teachers who we would get because they were, I knew that they, the content was something that we could help develop because we had good coaches. We had master teachers who were experts and who could do it. And we also had a commitment to learning where we knew that we would use professional development, that we would use our resources, that we would use book clubs and, and observing and models and, and leverage substitutes so that teachers could get an opportunity to sit inside of other teachers' classrooms. There was so much expertise in our school and in our building just like expertise is in our community that we didn't that we had to make sure we took advantage of and so when i think about teacher prep programs like it's really about how we use feedback and and what do we decide are the the key things that everybody needs to know and understand and master before we even allow them to become teachers. And so for me, a lot of that is around human growth and development. <laughs> like, what do you know about developmental benchmarks? Like, how do we talk about special education, not as a separate course, but as a way of implementing high quality instruction, regardless of age or content or differentiation, like how we think about those things, how we use data. Some of the things that made the best impact on me as a teacher and as a principal weren't things that I learned in a teacher ed program. Like what I learned was like, here, make a lesson plan or make a unit of study. It should include these these five E's. But when it came down to it, that did it. That wasn't enough to make sure that I was prepared to teach 25 students, many of which were below grade level and some were above. And so I think that there is this way we can leverage the window and make residencies high quality, make them more than just six weeks, make, provide mentors, like real high quality mentors. We used to do things where you would like, uh, um, like record a teacher at a certain lesson and we would often record all of the great ones. And I said, well, what would happen if we recorded some teachers who were struggling and use that as an opportunity to teach? Because too many times we take our experts and our master educators and we make a video of them and for folks who are struggling and don't know how to get there who have no idea what to do it seems like it's so far away that like well that's not even me i'll just give up and throw in a towel and so i think there are some things we can be doing with folks to help them prepare and develop and and get that craft together along their continuum i think we also have to remind folks that a good educator and a great teacher never stops learning whether they have taught for 10 years, five years, highly effective, regardless, they are committed to learning. When I think about some of my best teachers, they are still going to 
STEM parks for the summer or taking trips to learn or reading different things or signing up for classes at the art gallery because they have a genuine commitment to wanting to learn and get better. And the more that they learn and get better, whether it's about the content or about pedagogy or classroom management or innovation technology using a new app or a new device will only improve the ways that they are able to transfer skills into their classrooms. And so it's both about how we create better teacher ed programs and how we extend this opportunities for learning so that people can understand that teaching is not something that you just get and that you're done with. That the best teachers, the best master educators are always reading, always learning, and always trying to get better. Hmm. Appreciate you, sis. All right, and so uh, closing out, any closing words? So my closing words are for people to just continue to stay vigilant. Like there's a lot of um, misinformation and, and wrong information. And so you, you always remind us to protect our chicken and protect our mentals. I would also ask people, you know, just encourage you to just question what you think you know. Um, and don't be afraid to, to Google and get to, to, to a different perspective uh, in order to hopefully get closer to the truth. So you can um, be an informed consumer of, of information, of content, um, and an informed critic of the things that you need to know and, and, and take more ownership of where you sit in those spaces. So that would be my last. Sis, I, I, I just watched Cat Williams, World War III, right? Okay. And uh, and one one of the things that he was saying on World War Three, uh, which is, you know, it's, 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 it ain't really like jump out the window funny. It's okay. Uh, I was expecting more. But one of the things that he says is that, you know, on one side, there's the truth. On the other side, there's the lie, right? And you get to determine what side you want to be on, right? Mm -hmm. You want to be on the side of the truth or you want to be on the side of the lie, right? And so what we have is that we have a lot of people that are really comfortable on being on the side of the lie, right? Um, as a matter of fact, too comfortable with uh with, with engaging in the lie the big lie little lie any lie right <laughs> uh, <laughs> and folks, folks just out here lying right and so uh you know i thank thankful for you thankful for doc for uh, always being on the side of the truth always coming in to represent the people the way that we need to and again salute to you uh on on walking uh uh at the university of pennsylvania Ivy League, baby, Ivy League. I should put my cap. I started to put my cap on, but <laughs> yeah. Right. So again, appreciate you. Appreciate your hard work, and I can't wait for the phenomenal things that you're going to do for our community with that community degree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys have been listening to Three Times Dope podcast, two times dope for the last eight minutes, and uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week. Peace.